Hi. Mm. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media. Hi, welcome to Outrageous. Mm, my God. All right, everyone. Now I'm thinking about it too hard. Ready? One, two. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hello, friends. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? Well, Trisha didn't like my greeting. Is that that thing? Wait, I, I, I was like, it just sounded weird. I was like, what are we, Sesame Street? Hello, friends. <laughs> So Chris can say joined by my very best friends, but I can't say hello, friends. Uh, yeah, it's creepy. Well, you know, it's creepy. <laughs> Sesame Street is creepy. You did do it a little, you did do it a little like you leaned into the Mr. Rogers Rogersness of it all. So um, that aside, now that you've chastened Jason, let's w- wish him a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Jason. Thank you, friends. <laughs> okay, that's going to be the end of that. <laughs> Uh, everybody, uh, <laughs> Although, I like I like that you're actually using um, a greeting that name checks the timing of our podcast. They don't know his birthday is. We can air this whenever. That's true. I also Although don't I, have the phobia of people knowing my birthday that that you have, Chris. I don't have a phobia. I just don't know why anyone needs to know my birth date. That's weird. Well, if you, weird? you didn't know, I wouldn't have gotten those very nice text messages and wouldn't know that I'm loved. Well, sure. I don't know. <laughs> Let me tell you about this thing that I've been doing lately. It's the newest thing. Your public library. I rediscovered it. I freaking love it. Why do I always forget that? Libraries, oh, are, libraries are great. Freaking mm-hmm. community. They're incredible. But Socialism, this, man. Socialism. It's such a great thing to have. I don't understand why their hours are like 10 to 11, 15. <laughs> then they're off. Then it's three to four forty-five. Then from five to six fifteen. Budget on Tuesday. But budget cut. Hello, it's the twenty-first century. I get my library books on my phone. What, what okay. are you doing, bothering to go? Because I like the building. It's the buildings are valuable, Jason. Really? I'm not against the buildings. I'm just saying you don't have to go. We're also in a pandemic. I don't know if you two know that. So oh, I, when you I, I go to the know. library, it's it's full. Like you're trying to go to the Statue of Liberty. They full. Someone in a uniform stops you outside. Form a line. Come in. Force you to sanitize. You march in one at a time to the machine. They thrust the books you request at you, and they kick you out the door. You but, know what? That's the thing. I don't think I could do a timed library experience. I just love the fact that you walk in, grab books and go. Where else can you do something like that? A bookstore? Honey, if you try and just grab the books and go, there may be consequences. You know, you know, so our local library, you can't there. It's not open. Like you can't go in, but the librarians are there. And what you have to do, you have to go online and make an appointment. You know, my wife, who's a fantastic mother, gets a pile. And I mean, a pile of books Mm -hmm. every week for her kids. And so we're there every week we roll up and like, it's just, it's like this covert thing, right? Like the librarian comes out and like puts the books on a bookcase and then runs back in the library. And then you run up and get your bag of books. You drop off the one you had. It's, it's a very interesting, you know, kind of COVID idiosyncrasy. I, Sounds I, like a drug deal. It, it, it looks bit. like a drug deal. A it looks like bit. a drug deal. <laughs> you drive up in the family car, the kids in the back, all this furtive activity. Then you screech out of the parking yeah, lot. It, it's great. It, it's kind of like that. Yeah. It doesn't look weird at all. <laughs> what, have up, what have you been up to lately trisha not that <laughs> which is surprising because you know i've been listening to a lot of old podcasts and about every seven episodes you go i've rediscovered my love of reading i was like you don't seem to ever lose it <laughs> <laughs> i've been enjoying going outside more actually oh, um yeah yeah, yeah I, it's a return to the early part of the pandemic which actually is not it's just a return to what i was doing in march of last year which is yeah. like rediscovering outside again and been like oh it's so nice to be out here walking you still like your neighborhood there is a marked difference in the neighborhood i mean i hate to be like the neighborhood app the criminal one. Oh, next door. You talking about the next, next door, door? Next door. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about. Like you know how ne- next door. Every now and then, next door gets a little bit weird, and it's like it's always still- weird. What are you talking I, about? Every now I and then, mean, I can't. I can't go into it. It's crazy. Can you well, two talk to the city boy about what next door is? I don't know what that is. 
Oh, sorry. Yeah. So next door is basically like, um, and it's an app that basically allows you to sign in and engage with people within your neighborhood. So it's, it's zip code. It's can, can I do, can I do two impressions? So here, here's one impression of next door. Oh my goodness. A police car just drove by my house. What's going on out there? That's one, that's one impression. Here's another one. Does anyone know where to get really good chocolate? Cause I could really use some good chocolate. You know what though? That's great. I mean, the yeah. second one, the second, the first one's a little. I don't want to live in that histrionic world. But the second one, that's great. You know, imagine being able to lean out. You want oh. to be like, anyone get any chocolate? Well, can I can I add to your the the world you don't want to live in, which is, I've been experiencing a man staring through my window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna have to download I, this app. No, I'm sure. You know, it's so fun. Actually, you should. You should actually, because I think you'll enjoy it because you're the kind of person that likes to know what's going on. But you know, what's so strange about it is um, it, it flips. It changes every now and then. Like there's a vibe to it sometimes. I think they they had gotten a lot of bad press about the fact that that was the state of the app. Example number one. And I think so people really were trying to figure out a way to like, let's not make it be this kind of like, prison mentality thing where it's like oh no this is all the horrible things that could happen um so people are trying to be present like oh where do you guys go shopping is this the great neighborhood yeah. for this or you know they were trying to do that but you still can't get away from i have a peeping tom or, or i just saw, I saw an a suspicious group of teens yeah, no it's like that a white sedan slowed down near my child today i think yeah. there are rapists and murderers you know yeah it's really bad all over but the anyway, neighborhood what are we supposed but the reason to why do? i and <laughs> Sorry, the reason why I went down this road anyway is because I feel like I can. There are some qualitative differences in my neighborhood now that I've been walking, and I know people have been like, "Oh, crimes on the rise," and da da da. But I'm like, "Well, we are, after all, in a slight recession of sorts, I would assume, mm-hmm. and lots of people have lost their jobs. People are actually staying in their cars, so there's like a definite vibe that feels a little bit different." Um, but yet we're not supposed to kind of admit that it is that way because it feels like we are judging how people are reacting to the pandemic, but there mm-hmm. are more homeless people. So there are more people on the streets in that way. So it's just a little bit, it's, um, it's a little bit strange. I will say like, it doesn't feel as buoyant as I would want it to be, but hello, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So maybe I'm actually have asking for more than I should, but the app actually is an accurate reflection of like the anxiety that I sometimes experience when I turn certain corners of the neighborhoods that I'm in. I'm like, mm. Ooh, this is an unpleasant one or mm, this is pleasant. You know, it's just really strange. Huh. Yeah. It's just weird. It sounds, it sounds wild. Let's jump into some topics. <laughs> so uh, the world has uh, seen and analyzed and picked apart the Oprah interview with Meghan Markle and the hot prince from England. You know, Meghan, we can get into what what they talked about. She said a lot, had a lot to say about the royal firm and how she was treated. And we want to talk a little bit about that. But before that, you know, when we were talking, Trisha expressed... Trisha, I'm going to talk for you, even though you're in the room. Trisha expressed like there's a real interest and there's sort of like a, I don't know if yearning is the right word, but just missing these kinds of talk show formats, like the big interview. Now with with celebrities being just, you know, one DM away, whether or not they respond or whenever or not they see it, the fact that we hear from our celebrities so much, like we don't, we kind of miss this cultural moment of us all watching the same thing and receiving the same information the same way. So I want to talk a little bit about the form and then if there's time, we'll dish on what's going on with these royal people. So Trisha, why don't you start since this was kind of like, um, this is something you were thinking about. What What's your uh, sort of, when you think about the, not necessarily the content, but what those three people were doing, mm-hmm. what do you think about it? What attracts you to, to that format? Aside from sports, which has to happen in real time, um, there are very few other activities that you can watch in the same way or you're expected to watch in the same way, right? Especially with kind of like the Netflix generation, you can kind of just like consume at your leisure, Mm-hmm. appointment tv is how we grew up like hello before vcrs and all that kind of stuff you just needed to be there or you're missing it or you missed it or yeah. you missed yeah. it right and- laws, they're gonna play it that one time every year and if you miss it you gotta wait till the next year yeah, yeah. and you know what it was so also reminding. i know right and i w- it was also reminding remember when they used to premiere music videos Oh, and then you'd oh, have yes. to like show up the next day at school. I remember running out of the shower, soaking wet because my cousin screamed, Michael Jackson's remember the time it's on now, now. 
And I, if I didn't see it right now, <laughs> this is an MTV world premiere. Soaking the carpet. Yeah. And so in my mind, like in my mind, the Oprah interview was very much that. It was very much that in the sense that there were some pre-run moments of it, but it all had to be experienced live. And unfortunately, like, you know, if you're on the East Coast, you got it earlier and all that kind of stuff. But you really... But even I couldn't access it online unless I had like a sophisticated cable setup and streaming. And they really controlled how it was um, delivered to you to actually force you to have this experience all at the same time in unity. And there was something really compelling about just that, like controlling my access to this information and not giving it to me piecemeal. And also, to be honest, I had read a little bit about it, that they also didn't give it a lot of advance recordings to even the network so everyone was receiving everything about it new at the same time which I just I love that I was like oh we're all receiving this information all together we all have to process it we're all having to make sense of it and in conversations afterwards you end up having to I'd say I'd say did you see the interview and everyone knew what I meant they knew exactly what I meant when I said, so this, this, this shared experience is actually something that I think is very community building, right? But it's rare because we've segmented so much of our entertainment and so much of our, um, the things that we consume, like this is my little niche, this is this little niche. And so it was just kind of really gratifying to have something that sort of crossed gender, yeah. cross race, cross age groups. People were all watching it and I felt really Kind of, I felt it was really special that we were all watching the same thing and responding to it. Whether we agreed with what was going on, I didn't really care about that so much. It was like everyone was talking about the same thing. And I felt, I don't know, I felt connected to people in a way that I hadn't really felt in a long time. I just wonder about whether we should re- recreate more moments like that um, so that there is at least a shared world that we have with each other. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise we just keep skizzing it off. And I think there's something... A little bit flawed in that. Okay. Jason, what about the interview format? What do you think? Trisha, you raised a lot of interesting questions and thoughts. I mean, generally, I think what really appealed to me about what Trisha just said, what you just said, Trisha, is about, you know, frankly, having like some shared sense of truth. Like, so this happened. And by truth, I'm just talking about the interview itself, right? Like, we have such fragmented information and understandings of reality that. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to what you're saying. Like this interview happened and lots of people saw it across different lines of difference. Like that, that's pretty cool. We, I agree. I think we'd probably have a, you know, a better society if we did more of that. Um, I also, and again, it's weird for me to say this because I didn't watch it, but like, you know, look, I am a big fan of Oprah's. I think she does great interviews. I like Didn't a lot of stuff. Did you push her for president a little while back? Oh, yeah. I'd vote <laughs> for her tomorrow. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think she's great. And, I, and with interviews, though, in particular, I mean, I remember the Lance Armstrong interview. She's so skilled without, I, I don't know. I just think her style of interviewing, she reveals a lot of truth without appearing to be driving the conversation it, it is how I experience her. The got you is very subtle extremely yeah. and, the, yes. and the, yes and the gotcha yes. question it feels more like she arrived there like leaning forward and like nodding along like a friend would yeah. like it's it's, it's she really gets like, the 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 interview ease to say the, to speak the truth right and in a way that she doesn't have to sum it up like she asks subtle questions that gets them to speak the truth and reveal the truth might be a better way to say it now chris you asked the question you said you know, the, the reason on some level, the reason why this is compelling TV is because in some ways these folks are inaccessible. You're not going to find oh, Megan, Harry and Harry and, and Megan. And but there Megan, are lots yeah. of people who are similarly inaccessible. You know, I think a signature sit down with a Madonna is still compelling. A signature sit down with, um, you know, even people who are trying to craft and shape a narrative for you. There's nothing like having an interviewer who's really skilled mm-hmm. at drawing you out and taking you down different roads, right? I think I I see that absolutely. But also I think a lot of this is gonna, I don't necessarily wanna have a conversation about Oprah, but to what Jason said, she is particularly skilled. Honestly, I'd watch Oprah, I'd watch Oprah interview, like, I don't even know what, like even the most boring, vapid celebrity today because she would get something out of them. Generally she does. You know, I'm thinking about (laughs) all these Instagram influencers. Like if they sat down with Oprah, they may be interesting for the first time ever. 
you know <laughs> yeah yeah because you know you it's know. different it's different to me like you know people are really a fan of the red table yes and, and i'm not a fan of it at all it's, um, it's it feels a little presentational yeah, presentational and- yeah they are entirely in control of the narrative there's not enough good follow-through on the questions like you know like there's not enough prodding and moving people in spaces where they're slightly uncomfortable and they have to really dig a little bit deeper than they normally do so i don't really actually find it to be as compelling mm-hmm. um but i think there's something to be said so i both enjoy the interview format too that's a part of it as well this idea that let's let's chat let's talk let's Let's unpack some stuff because, you know, I don't like the shouting. So that's that's always really exciting. But then also, I think, as I indicated to Jason, it's the shared experience that I like. Sure. I really think we need more of those that are non-sports related. Well, I want to <laughs> I want to just pick up what you said about the red table. It's interesting because I feel like the red table fits into more what's going on, like in this moment. And it comes back to why the red table is even a thing that people can watch. Oprah mentioned in an interview that when she was prepping for this interview, she asked the couple and she asked all the celebrities she interviews, like, what is your intent here? What do you hope to accomplish? And then she says, she asked them that. And then Oprah expresses what she wants to accomplish with this interview, what her intent is so that they can both see each other. There's something about that, that, and I hate to use this word when we're talking about mediated experiences, there's something that's honest about that, that I really, really enjoy, you know? And I, something like the red table, I feel like, the intent is to be shocking. Well, shocking is the wrong word. The intent is to be controversial. And I never really feel like Oprah's intent is to be controversial. Even when she interviews like really controversial people, whether it be like Lindsay Lohan or Kim Kardashian, I never really feel like she's trying to join sort of like the Com- like the common conversation about those people. Does that make sense? You know, and, and again, we're yeah, talking, this is a conversation about I Oprah now, is. but I think it does. I mean, what I love about that question, like, I just feel, and I I just think it's very rare. I mean, Oprah seems to be, to truly honor what a person's interest is in talking with her, even when- That's a revelation. That's, it's so strange that that's a revelation. I know, but it is. I mean, again, I think back to Lance Armstrong and, you know, I think he wanted to set the record straight, right? For what the truth was. And look, I've never heard him speak about what he thought about the interview. But what I thought was so interesting about that interview, I'm guessing he accomplished what he wanted to. He got to say his whole piece. And yet, again, without her being heavy handed with it, I think as an audience member, you look at it and you go, oh my God, what an asshole. Like, I just, <laughs> I just think they both accomplished what they wanted, which is kind of beautiful, right? I think that's great. What do you, what do you think was Oprah's intent with this interview? I think theirs was is much easier for me to understand. I think their intention was to clear up narrative inaccuracies in their minds and to present this from their full point of view, to take you through the story so that you're experiencing as they did. Because so many of so many of the information, so much of the information that you had received about them were through others, the parent, the father, the But why would that be important to them? Oh, because I think they're, I think they are leveraging a brand and I think they want to set the record straight about where they came from and where they expect to go. And um, because they have a platform that they are actually going to be launching, right? They have a media platform. So I think it was their attempt to say, listen, I'm going to clear the air, let you know what we're about. And from this point forward, this is the, this is where we, this is how we want you to see us. This is how we want you to understand our departure from the Royals and what it meant and why um, it was no longer viable, those kinds of things. I think that was their intention was to create and shape a narrative for the audience in contrast to the ones that had been created by others for them. Jason, what do you think their intent was? Why would anyone sit down for something like this? I, I didn't, I have to admit, I did not know what you just said, Trisha, that they were <laughs> launching a media Yeah, platform. I'm looking it up right now too. I'm trying to. Um, they made, they have a Netflix deal. I mean, this isn't, this doesn't directly answer your question, Chris, but what, I have to say, like, I, I usually, I don't take a lot of interest in, you know, Royals and, and that kind of thing, positive or negative. Um, I, I feel like, I feel a lot of respect for them. Like, I think what they're choosing to do and what they've done they have kind of abdicated some responsibility. I think it's great. Like, I think they have decided they're going to, I mean, I think it takes a lot of courage and it's, I'm guessing it's a very difficult thing to do to 
turn away from, you know, some really entrenched institution that gives a ton of privilege that they've had access to. I mean, I get that it came with a lot of pain and problematic. I just really respect what they're doing. And I think it's great that they sat down and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this, this may be me being naive, but part of it to me seemed like dignity, like their dignity has been threatened from so many different directions. And they had an opportunity to sit down and say, here's our point of view. Like, we're not just going to be thrashed in, in, in the media. You know, I got the sense that Megan wanted to tell this story because not because she wanted to expose or embarrass anyone, but she wanted to sort of shine a light on some of the entrenched, to use your word, Jason, attitudes of these people and how damaging it was to her and her mental health. And I don't know, I got the sense that it was important to her that people know that she was suffering um, yeah, in case they are right. also suffering. Like I, I gave that to her because that's I kind of bought that. His intention, I'm not certain what his intention was. You know, he brought up his mother in that interview. I think that after seeing what happened with her after their, their parents divorced, and listen, I don't know these people, but I just get the sense that that is something that he is still carrying around. Like it was so live for him in the interview when he talked about it. And I think he just sees the sort of the parallel between what happened with Diana, what's happening with Megan times six, because also she is half black. Um, Again, I usually just don't care at all about Royals, but like, I feel like I respect he's given the finger to tradition from the very beginning. He's going to marry a woman who's been married before, marry someone who's American, marry someone who's biracial. And he, I mean, at least from what I see, and I get that it's very, very limited, but like he has stood by that decision and, and not to take anything away from her. I think she's been incredibly courageous and it appears to me has had real integrity throughout the whole debacle. Yeah, I don't have any of those opinions about it because I don't really think, I mean, there's a really weird thing about them that I don't know. Like it was interesting when I was watching it, I found it like compelling TV, but I couldn't tell you if I believed everything about what was happening, but I just found it compelling nonetheless. Right. So I had like, I didn't, I didn't know, I don't know much about her character. I don't know much about his either. It's just sort of weird. Like I was just like, there was a distance there that I, I kind of maintain now through any kind of media representation. Um, I think I, the last time I believed an interview was Robin Gibbons and um, Mike Tyson. And and I realized realized afterwards that interview was like a load of BS. Um, And I was like, so sold on it. So from that point on, I was always like, well, you know, she took your trust. Well, it was just so, not she. I mean, I think they yeah, were it wasn't both, her fault. It was his fault. God damn it. They mm. were both performing. They were both performing a narrative around what was actually happening there. And it was only many years later that they both kind of confronted and talked about what was really going on in that relationship and what they were selling. So, but I found it as just a good media experience, like as a storytelling tool, mm-hmm. not one where I'm like convinced either way, but just as something that I thought was like worthy of watching I was, I was into it from the start to the end. That's rare for me, for even just regular TV. So, What's interesting is that you talk about as if it's a TV show. Like you didn't find it. Sure. That's true. It yeah. is. <laughs> That's interesting because it's really not the interview format. It's the performance of the interview that you find interesting. It's the fact that Oprah was very clear with CBS that this won't be streamed. Like this is a one-time thing. It, it could have been not just an interview with anybody. It could have just been like a really prestige drama and no 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 it's different than a prestige drama i think what i'm saying is everything is a narrative and even an interview is a narrative Mm -hmm. and so the through line there was very well put together it was woven it was woven together well a well done interview feels like a story and so that's what i'm saying like it was well done i've seen interview shows and they're kind of slapdash some of them they're weird it doesn't seem like people are well researched some people are not quite comfortable so that's what i'm saying the art of that the artifice of it worked and um and so I would appreciate seeing, I said to myself after watching, I was like, I would sign on for monthly engagements like that. I would sign on for, a. am wa- listen, I watched through commercials. What I find so interesting about what you're saying, Trisha, is it sounds like if tomorrow revelations came out that 99% of what they said was untrue, you would feel no less excited about yeah, it. That's, what I'm on. that's really yeah, fascinating. I, I think that's just fascinating. <laughs> I, you know what I've decided? I've decided that if I don't know you personally, 
I take everything you say with a grain of sugar. Well, I mean, especially if it's mediated. It's yeah, I just you overhear someone in a bar or in your small group of friends, even that you don't know that well, and someone shares something. It's quite a different when you know you pick out an entire outfit, you meet with producers for like a week before you're going to quote unquote be honest and genuine, discussing what you're going to be honest and genuine about. Like, obviously, that's that's really interesting. That's what I'm vibing on. I'm kind of like lost in the idea that like you saw it's a, a really great show. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, and it's a three hour plus experience cut down to two. So anything, unless it's live and told filming, any story, actually, it's it, it's it, yeah, that's the thing. Like, I mean, this is my media literacy background coming to me, but the whole thing is a construction because it's three hours plus and it was collapsed into two. Mm-hmm. So that means that there are edits. Yeah. That means that all of these pieces are put together in a certain way. And so- At the um, end, Harry could have said, fuck this, this is all bullshit. And then it doesn't matter because we still got the story we got. You know what <laughs> no. I mean? And- interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And no, I, that's, um, that's really an interesting thing that you're saying. I guess I guess you just missed appointment TV, which is great. Yeah. You know, and I as we go out on this topic, I must bring- up the most important appointment TV of my entire lifetime when Geraldo Rivera thought he could find Al Capone's vault. Al Capone's vault. Al Capone's vault. Was I I in the country? uh, No, you weren't here yet. Okay. I want to say this was 85. Jason, do you remember? That sounds about, I I can picture (laughs) watching it on some old ass TV. Oh God. It was somewhere around 85. Yeah, it was around then. Uh, I think we had just moved to Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, which which was around 85 or 80s. Yeah, if you look it up, everyone, you look on Wikipedia what we're talking about, but you know what's great about that, Jason? It's it's what Trisha says. Like you said, you remember being in front of some old ass TV. (laughs) I was also in front of an old ass TV. We had that experience together, like 150 miles away from each other. We still had that experience. And Trisha, you're right. It's really powerful because I can just say that and Jason knows where he is and I knew where I was. And you were still in Jamaica being like, hey, whatever. No, you know what? So funny. I was here, but I was a newbie here. So I wasn't yes. connecting to that. So, like, because I came in 84. So I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> You're like, Geraldo who? But in your thick You know Jamaican what? People accent. talk, people reference that often. Yeah, if you're like, of a certain age, you saw deal. it on TV. You, oh, you were like Jason and me. We were all home watching <laughs> on TV. Because, and you know, I think back like, it shows how susceptible I was to like um, marketing because I barely knew who Al Capone was. It didn't matter. But there was so much <laughs> hype. There was so much hype. Geraldo is going to stand in front of the vault and in front of America, open it but up. But you know what, gonna... Jason? Just because we have to wrap this up, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like that just supports what Trisha said. It didn't matter that you didn't know who Al Capone was. It didn't matter <laughs> that he didn't find anything. None of it mattered, <laughs> right? Just like yeah. whether Harry and Megan are actually nice people or if they're just, you know, conniving. It doesn't matter. We had the experience. Like we're talking about it's it. True. We're I mean, there was, what's so funny is there was nothing in there, and clearly it does like <laughs> and it, fail. It was a complete fail. And or was it? it? Or was it a complete fail? Here we are. Here we are. Thirty years later, still talking about it. Forty years later. You so, you hit the nail on the head, Christopher. That's it. Okay. Oh wow. Thanks for thanks for bringing thanks for having this conversation because I started somewhere different. I arrived somewhere different. And I love it. I love it. So uh, <laughs> let's leave that there because there's no way we're going to wrap that up better. Let's move on to the second topic. Jason, you're going to bring us there, yeah? Yes. So listeners, Chris made us aware of an article in The New Yorker. It's titled, Who Should Stop Unethical AI? It you know goes into some of the questions we hear sometimes about the risks of AI and the bias that gets put into AI and that kind of thing. It seems to, to focus on um, a particular type of AI that's being developed, which would allow um, basically an algorithm, if the input is um, a voice saying something, the algorithm would construct the face. And right away, even as I say it, you think of all the ways that could go wrong. The article particularly focuses on the problems around gender and this, this algorithm is supposed to produce well, the person saying that is male or female. And again, all kinds of, of problems with that. What I found really interesting though, is that I mean, there are kind of three camps that I think you hear from in the article. One is, this is great. This will help, you know, security and blah, blah, blah. And we should keep doing this. Then there's a camp that's like, this is problematic. There's no 
ethics lens being applied. That's my term, ethics lens, but there's no ethics lens being applied and there needs to be an ethics lens. And then there are people who are saying, there is no good use of this. There are lots of possible bad uses, uh, but there's no good use and we should just cut this off. Like this research should not be happening. And so my question to you two is like, I don't know, kind of where, where do you see yourselves there? Is it like, you know, yes, these things have risks, but there are positive benefits. Is it this, this, there's a lot of promise, but we've got to be much more careful about ethics. Or is it like, there are certain types of research we should just cut off at the knees. I guess. And this is one of those tricky things, right? Because this is the issue with research. The issue with research for many people is that they believe there's such a thing as pure research, which is should be done for its own sake. Right. And I've always been of the school about sort of like to what end like I have to ask to what end what why are we going down this road um which necessarily leads you to like you have to come up with an an end conclusion right I think it's best for you to sort of presume where this will land and then ask yourself will this land us in a valuable place project out and so that's always I think my bias is I land there. I go, well, let me walk this down the natural end and am I going to go off a cliff? And if I'm going to go off a cliff, then why am I going down that road? Why am I driving down that road? What sort of curiosity factor is is supposed to lead me down that road? Now, I hate to say it, <laughs> but I think from a cultural perspective, that's like us watching a scary movie in a black theater and black people are like, why are you going in that room? Like what, what? Let's let's we we know there's a killer there. <laughs> <laughs> but the difference with that, the problem with your metaphor is that, you know, you're assuming there's a killer there. And I know what you're saying about pure research. Like I totally get it. Like you can't, like even asking the question betrays the fact of where your interest lies. This is yeah. many different ways of asking the same question. So, so yeah, I I I think that's. I, I totally see what you're saying about pure research, but the difference with the black movie theater is that like, I don't think scientists think there's a killer inside. I think on the other side is a shiny utopia. If we could only get X done. What is that? In, but I think that's always been the challenge for me. What is the utopia you imagine that a computer can tell you that history says history hasn't led you to believe is impossible. Well, can I say though, I don't know that it's always a utopia. So, and I'm not, let me just for a moment, play the part of this research could be helpful, you know, dot, dot, dot. That's, but you know what? I just want to say that statement before any sort of research, any sort of research, when they were skinning people and making lampshades and like any sort of research starts there. Well, right. And I, I mean, I would say that any sort of research when it first starts, there should be, you should ask, I mean, there are two questions. I'm thinking about what you said, Trisha, right? Like there are kind of two questions. One is like, what is the, what is the potential benefit? And then the other is what are the potential costs and negative ramifications? And that's really hard because lots of times things, you don't know what the negative ramifications are until you start down that road. So there are lots of things we could say here, but it, just in this case, where like, let's say, I, I told it, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, you know, I'm listening to this podcast through the cracks, which is about a girl who went missing in DC, a girl had been living in a homeless shelter, eight-year-old girl, and she still hasn't been found. Um, and whole other topic, but I could, I'm just thinking about that, right? And I'm thinking, well, if they had audio recording of who abducted her, that could be a lot more efficient and a lot more intr- uh, less intrusive to potentially identify the person, if it could be done, um, then, Go, it's like scouring the streets and profiling people and stopping people and all that. So, so like maybe that would be a benefit that would be actually less intrusive and problematic than some of the current policing practices. So that would be like the potential positive. That's not a utopia, but it's potentially a better benefit cost dynamic. Could that be done? And, and still like you apply kind of constant or periodic reviews from an ethical standpoint? Sure. I'm not, I don't know if anyone is saying that all research is bad. And Trisha certainly didn't say that. No, I said pure research. I said, yeah. there's also applied research because yes. that's what you're trying to say, but they never really are doing applied research. That's the thing. No, sometimes they're just shooting into the dark and being like, well, let's see what, if there's something over there. But without asking the question, should one be shooting in the dark? <laughs> you know, is that problematic? So yeah, like, Jason, everything you said, I think 
I, I mean, I wouldn't argue that. And I didn't hear Trisha say that, like applied, like she said, no, applied I, research. If we have a problem we want to solve, but literally just poking around and being like, you know, when we turn the algorithms this way, we found out that it's the perfect way to determine at birth, like what people, whatever, X, Y, Z, I don't know, whatever it would be before anyone asked the question, should we, they go, Oh, that'd be cool. Let's just, let's mix that together and see what happens. I'm sure what you're describing exists and I agree with you. It should not, but I don't think that's all researchers. I mean, again, to ooh, go back. Ooh, I think you, you need to, you need to pull back from there. There's a lot that comes to market without anyone thinking through clearly the end, the ends of them. And also I just, I think you have to live in the world. In the world, the world tends to be dehumanizing. Yikes, Trisha. Right? I mean, but yikes. It is, right? So if 90% of the time we dehumanize others, then most of the products and the things that come out of the world will necessarily lead to that end right? If we are redlining people, then anything that comes up will be used for redlining. Like, I just think that that's the utopian piece that Chris is saying. It's like, you cannot presume this unrealistic world and then inject the research in it. You must base your research on what happens with tools and applications and processes and presume that there will be bad actors, that will take your thing and take it down a road. And oftentimes the big headline is the surprise. That's how, that's how traditionally these things um, unmask themselves, right? People go, oh, we didn't even consider that it would be used that way. Yeah, I, I hear you. I guess like when I think about the three camps I laid out in the beginning, like I personally would say I'm in the camp of we should make sure we do things through an ethical lens. But like, I think about the, the example in the article and what some people were saying is this shouldn't be done because it's going to be used for policing and surveillance. Well, I think what the really hard truth, like everything you just said, Trisha, is right on. What the really hard truth is, is that, and there are a million problems with the way we police and, and the way surveillance is done and all that. And there are going to be times when kids go missing and we want to find them. Like, and, or we and, just and, let them be missing. Right. I mean, those are the trade-offs you have to calculate. We let but Who's people- calculating them? Yeah, because I mean, some kids, people are fine missing. Lots right of kids up, go missing. Right we up until then, but we're talking Jason, about what we should be doing. That's yes, what but, I'm saying. Listen, I, I'm not coming down on like the technology that we're sort of hypothetically talking about. Like, oh, we can surveil people, whatever. I'm not coming down on like that as a bad idea. But I think what I'm stuck on is that no one asks us for a bad idea. So someone's will say like, oh yeah, we can find missing kids. We can surveil, da, 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 da. I just, that conversation about like the goods and the bads of it, I'm just wondering if that's happening. I don't know if it's happening with scientists, but I would, I kind of think it doesn't. I kind well, of think the article that, suggests it's beginning to happen. It's that's, that's what I'm saying. So it hasn't been happening up it to hasn't that point. Been happening. I just think, yeah, if if we're like, oh, we can use this to detect this, these are the crimes that we'll solve, da 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 da. I would just like that not to be the end of the conversation. Be like, okay, great. We've listed all the ways that this could be helpful. I don't, it doesn't sound like for me in the article that scientists spent a lot of time being like, okay, well, let's now, let's think if there's any cautionary tones that we need to strike as we move forward. That conversation would make me feel better. Do you know what I mean? No, I completely agree. I think that's the conjecture though. I mean, I think this is why I've been really thinking about this a lot because this is why we end up going down certain roads is that we start with the imagination of the imaginary utopia that you bring up, Chris. You start with, we're going to find kids. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And who says no to that? But when oh God, you- Whenever when you bring you, in the kids, you can't, yeah, like you you can't start go back from that. The kids, you can't come back from that. Yeah. But the thing that the reality is, is that it actually often doesn't even go there. You know, that's not, that's not its immediate outcome. The immediate outcome are the things that are the easiest for it to do, which are the carceral parts about it, parts of it, right? The quick ways of like discriminating, the quick ways of like yes, making something. That's, right on. that's usually what ends up happening. Yeah, I don't want to be too um, whatever, yeah. but also like there's no money in finding kids, but there's big money in prisons. <laughs> there's big money in imprisoning people. No, I, I don't want to sound cynical, yeah, it's but like, when yeah, it comes hard. to technology and who's going to pay for it and what it's yeah. going to be used for, like that's the consideration. Like, yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. So we think, oh, great, we're going to find all these kids. Then like, who the hell is going to pay to fire up that machine to find some missing kids? And again, I don't mean to sound cynical, but like, come on. 
No, I'll tell you what's interesting. What I, what I think of as we're talking about this is I think about like the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. you know, way back. And I, I have to say, I've maybe gotten a somewhat better understanding of like why anyone would have ever proposed doing it without a completely nefarious purpose. And, you know, coming out of World War One, where like lots and lots of people died in horrific ways in Europe, there was a sense of like, if you had had a big bomb in 1914, that you could drop. You could bomb place. more people in, in, a, in a precise no, way. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, can I finish? Can I finish? Yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The numbers of people who died could have been, the, the, the thinking was drastically reduced. Like you could have, you know, cut Germany off at the knees really early on. Yes, you would have killed people, but it would have been a fraction of the number of people on both sides and the, 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 the extent to which it was widespread that people were slaughtered all over the continent. Then, of course, how does the atomic bomb get used? It gets used in a way that it didn't save any lives. It got used in a way that killed a ton of people to make a political statement, you know, to another country. So I don't know. I just that, that's what comes to mind as I as I hear this conversation. This is the utopian fantasy, which is the idea of how we actually operate in the world and the wish for how we will operate in the world. It's interesting. I was reading an article about how this notion, remember the prime directive in Star Trek? Oh, I don't. Um, The prime directive says that if you encounter sort of a new society, you don't introduce new things into the society because the society has its own road to go down. Mm -hmm. But what, I I mean, and I think, I think there's something really fascinating about that, right? Because there's this understanding that you have to honor your relationship with others, with, with, with humanity, like let them go down their own path, even if you think that they're making an error, error, because you don't know. Right. And, and, and so that sense of sort of like an overarching guiding principle is what that article suggests is missing in that community Mm. is that that community doesn't have enough of an occasion to talk about what are the guardrails what are the, where are the places you won't go? Because every interaction involves limits. And this is the question in this moment is if you don't have limits, then what are your values? What do you care about? What are you about? Because values are telling you where you won't go. But if you've never introduced that into the mix, and I'm not, I mean, I have, you know, obviously I have my own, but I think what, what's, what's challenging and what the article is suggesting is that we don't create a format for that. And it's, and so they were suggesting yep. that at conferences, you need to have that format and da, da, da. there should be roads you don't go down. And I guess what's missing is, um, are those institutions that used to call to that? I don't know if they used to, maybe it's nostalgia, but that's the question of like, maybe your religious institutions, if it's like consistent enough and if they have a unified voice, but Listen, we live in a culture where people now think that if you give people food, that's like socialism and that's bad. So like you realize that there are not, there are not a lot of shared values. So if we don't have shared values, oh, we're back around to the Oprah thing. If we don't have shared values, (laughs) you almost don't want to introduce these complex tools in the society without shared values. That's very like, well said. That's, and that's our problem right now because we do not have shared values as a society. And so you can see how dangerous it would be to construct machines that are operating on their own, making decisions, like spitting out data. That's the other thing. It's like, we're not even like a highly functional society around like basic things. So then we introduce these increasingly complex things that we still haven't quite even figured out what we were going to do. Like, it's just, that's, that's the challenge to me. It's like, we know to introduce students into a classroom, we need ventilation, but we're having a conversation about ventilation. So it's like, how are we going to have a conversation about identity, which is still so fraught based on voice? I don't know if they, you, and there's other texts that's like, oh, we're going to be able to tell who you are by your gate. Who you are? Like, what does that mean? Your race by your gate. Black people walk differently than white people. And so what is the potential yeah. use no, of that? Immediately, <laughs> like, that's my it. first question. <laughs> but people are like, oh, this gate analysis is really going to provide us with, with what? Like, how do you finish that? You Useful know. information, because I know that if I can sense who's walking behind me, I will know something about that person's identity. I mean, like, there's <laughs> just like these natural ends. And you're like, in what, in what scenario is that going to be valuable information yielded? What is that going to do for you? Know, you know, it could be really valuable for white artists who want to exploit Black music. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. 
Like they like yeah. wait, we got Ebonics, but wait, we can also imitate yeah. black people's gait. Is there a way I'm to gonna steal sell another their very, million records? Is there a way to steal their very souls and wear it in little bottles around our necks? That's the that's the next thing they'll research. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, I love I love technological solutions. I love solutions because you know what? You know, what's a great technology oh, vaccines. It's a great technology. It's a, it's yes, a tool. Plug those vaccines. Trish. I love a vaccine, but um, it's distribution. All of those pieces. Nobody had a problem with vaccines when you said if everyone was going to get it equally. But we know these things have become politicized. And so yeah. there will be choices made about who dies, who gets it, who blah, 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 all of those things. And so I just hate these like perfect scenarios when people don't even like work in that space normally. So let's just presume imperfection and then count that into the conversation and then Agreed. make our decisions based and, on that. Which and is why- be careful. And just be careful. Like uh, primarily in wrapping up this um, segment, I want to just recount a short story that um, mm-hmm. was told to me about artificial intelligence, about how like in- this greeting card spent all this money to research a artificial intelligence that will write the perfect greeting card and deliver it to people. Um, yes, so, give yeah, it to me. So, you know, it was tasked with like increasing production and getting as many um, greeting cards out to people as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. At the end of the book, the thing becomes self-aware and realizes the best way to come up with greeting cards is to like harvest people to use for the resources. Cause like they kept using resources to print more and more greeting cards until it wipes out the human race. This is like a science fiction like story, but you know, it's, it sticks with me. Cause I was like, yeah, you know, did anyone stop to think that this might happen when you started? Like it was like the perfect tale of what we think about our technology. Like if, if it could just be bigger, faster, more efficient, what yeah. could be the harm? And my thing is like, that's that question, that seemingly rhetorical question is an entire conversation yep. <laughs> about whatever it is. That's yeah. that's the question. What could be the harm? All right, let's move on to media recommendations, which is something that you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha? So in keeping with the topic that we ended on, I will share a book that I read that I think is really readable and I think is helpful. And it's called um, Artificial on Intelligence. How Computers Misunderstand the World by Meredith Broussard. And basically the primary contention of this um, piece is what are the limits? What, 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 are, um, what are the limits? What are the things that make us human? And how do we sometimes attempt to make computers replicate that? And why will computers fail to do that? Like, cause they're not human. And this, it's really interesting because there's always this notion that computers will become sentient which is why people go down this road and assume a certain kind of ownership by the computer. But at all points in time, a computer is being programmed to do things that we tell it to do (laughs) Um, without the sophistication in some ways that we have. Uh, And so that's, that's really the author's question is to try to ask us to figure out what are the, what are the limits of the things that we create? Um, And then if we think of computers as assisting us, instead of replacing us, that's a whole different kind of conversation that you're having with a computer. That's cool. I put that, as you were talking, I put that on my library list. So I'm picking that up in the library as soon as it's delivered to my local branch. I already asked for it. Jason, what about you? So I'm going to do an anti-recommendation. Oh, cool. God. Look how excited we are. This doesn't happen very often. Go ahead. Talk shit about something. Let's hear it. Um, Coming to America. Oh, yeah. The sequel, the digit two. I don't know how to say it orally to be clear on which one it is. Oh, did you <laughs> like it, Chris? No, I just, I haven't heard anyone. I, I, I didn't, I never saw the first one. I was never part of that wave. Oh my goodness. So, so yeah, it's just one I'll of those say, cultural moments I missed. So real quick, I can, I saw the first one. I was a teenager. I saw it three times in the movie theater. I thought it was hilarious. Now, looking back, it is problematic on all kinds of levels. It is very funny and very problematic. I was excited about the second one because it seemed from the trailers and that kind of thing that it was gonna actually reflect on the way it was problematic and still be funny, which it kind of did. It did do that, Chris is shaking his head. It did do that. I mean, I'm looking at who's involved and I was like, you thought I was gonna do that? (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Have you seen Dolomite is my name? I mean, I know you recommended it does some good work. Anyway, the point is though, it did do that and it had some funny moments, but it seemed like, 
and this is going to be the most like you know lowbrow critique but like no one bothered to write a friggin' story. Like the first one, as problematic as it was, it was a very clear narrative to use your word, Trisha. And this one, it was just so stupid. Like why didn't someone write a script with like a real story? You know what? Because it was a cute idea. You know what somebody said? Oh my God, let's get the gang back together. What could be the harm? It's and nobody like sat down and said, what's the, the story? You're right. No, you're right. It's the same thing with the big fat Greek wedding. The first one was great. The second one was, I was like, why are we here? Why am I in this theater right now? <laughs> Didn't you two already get married? Oh, <laughs> Greek fat wedding too? And then I get mad because I'm like, these are talented people that we know can work well together. And this is what you're producing. Like they, I am, I'm angry that they spent so much time and money, not to mention the time I spent with these very talented people producing something that was garbage wow. all right i'm done there it is a powerful <laughs> anti-recommendation <laughs> wow you're not you're not gonna like this one i recently watched the movie barb and star go to vista del mar which is a movie written by and starring Kristen wig and annie mumolo who wrote bridesmaids the movie is ridiculous i, I want to start by saying it's ridiculous and neither of you would like it. You two would not like it at all. It's about these two middle-aged women living in the Midwest. They have very simple lives. So they decide to spice it up by going to the fictional Florida city, Vista Del Mar, which is sort of like a haven for uh, older people who like to collect shells and wear culottes. In any case, they get wrapped up in a plot with a secret villain and these two middle-aged women have to foil the plot. It's stupid like it, it's really really <laughs> dumb uh it's it's not as smart or raunchy as bridesmaids was but i thought it, i i watched it on a plane uh i went on a plane that's a whole nother story went on a plane i visiting a friend watched it got off the plane i went to my friend's house said you have to watch this movie it's stupid it was a good time. If you like very silly, very goofy sort of humor, you know what Kristen Wiig is about. Imagine yeah. Kristen Wiig unhinged. That's Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. It was a huh? lot of fun. Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. I don't know what to say. I kind of want to watch it, it now, though. Or you're going to hate it. I love Kristen Wiig, so I kind of can't imagine I wouldn't if, like it. But If you like Kristen Wiig and you like Kristen Wiig unhinged, like just doing whatever she wants to do, then you will like this movie. Uh, if you like anything less than that, you're gonna be like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. Trisha, you would hate it. I'm just gonna put that out there. I, I, I can already feel that I would. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> upset like, about I'm it. sick of you talking about it. <laughs> I'm not enjoy it. But it was, it was definitely fun. So uh, real quick before we go, I got on a plane. Uh, I went to go visit a friend in Florida because I he got he bought a new house. But also, I figured now that I'm fully immunized, I wanted to test out my immunization and get better. That's horrible. Don't you dare say that. Oh my uh, god. <laughs> anyway, on that note, Ooh, Fauci, I'm taking my mask off to find out if I get sick. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.